What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shave Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you on a Cardinals off day, Monday, August 7th, 2023. And I wasn't 100% sure if I'd go ahead with a B-Shave Daily episode tonight, given that there's no game to talk about. But at this point in the calendar, when it comes to the Cardinals, are we really focusing on the games as our primary topic of conversation anymore? Nah, not really. Team's pretty far below 500. I should probably know the record offhand. Wouldn't it be fun for me to guess it? I'll pull up the MLB standings. My guess is 49 and 64. That sounds right. Give me a minute here. I'll log it up on the old T-Mobile internet. I mean, it's taken longer than it should. Taken a lot longer than it should. I like you better than Spectrum, T-Mobile, but I'm I'm not liking you right now. This is actually not a a very good advertisement for T-Mobile. I could probably pull it up faster on my phone. Maybe it's MLB's fault. There it goes. Sorry you had to hear all that, but at some point, you just got to hold somebody accountable. I picked T-Mobile today. 49 and 64. Took me a full minute to find that out. Okay, yeah. Cardinal record isn't that good. 11 and a half games back as of this moment. I think there are still some teams in the Central active tonight, but the Cardinals off on Monday. I decided to do a podcast, and I decided to let you guys pick the topics of conversation. I tweeted out at bshafer12 on Twitter. No Cardinals game tonight, but I do call the podcast bshafe daily after all. So let me hear some questions, STL cards questions, if you have any that you'd like to be discussed on a podcast or video tonight. And I got a number of responses from you guys, and I'm just going to go right through them, answer the ones that I can. I, I Took a cursory glance at the uh, the crop of questions. I don't think we have anything that's off limits. I think I can get into all of these uh, to, to varying degrees. I may not have answers that you like, answers that are insightful, but I'm going to do my best as I do always here on B-Shape Daily. So make sure to hit that subscribe button if you're listening on YouTube, youtube.com slash at for 12 For those who follow me on Twitter but have not checked out YouTube before, it's uh, been hot and heavy since the beginning of April as we're doing... Lots of Cardinals videos and content over there. The B-Shape Daily Podcast is always posted as well to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are avenues that people like to listen to the show. So find your favorite. Subscribe to all of them. Do what you got to do. Uh, if you're on YouTube, click that like button. And I, the reason I like to promote YouTube, in addition to Twitter, it's about the best place to leave your comments and let me know what you guys think of what's going on with the Cardinals. So head to YouTube, even if you happen to listen somewhere else. Again, the URL is youtube.com slash at bshafer12, just like the Twitter handle. And drop your comment on this video as we're doing a little Q&A here tonight. I'm going to get right into it, though. No time to waste. And I think I decided, because a lot of these questions are Cardinals-related, of course, questions coming in about what I realistically think the Cardinals will do this offseason in terms of the spending that is needed for the rotation. It's been a big topic, and it will continue to be. Some questions maybe about the Japanese pitchers that could be available coming over to the United States and joining Major League Baseball perhaps this offseason. Could the Cardinals be in on any of those? Which I think is a particularly relevant question when you realize that if the Cardinals are signing big-name free agents to their rotation and those are guys that rejected a qualifying offer, the Cardinals would end up losing a draft pick in a year that they're going to be drafting rather highly, we think, in the MLB draft rounds. And so what goes into that thought process for the Cardinals as they approach this offseason of needing to fill so many rotation spots. So, like, lots of good Cardinals questions tonight, but I want to start with one from Eric, who basically just said he would like to hear my thoughts on the Kevin Brown situation. 
as it pertains to the story that has been dominating Twitter today, ever since Awful Announcing put out the the tweet and the story earlier Monday morning discussing the indefinite suspension, which I believe is now lifted. I think he's going to end up returning to Baltimore Orioles broadcast, but we're talking about their broadcaster, Kevin Brown, who does the games on the television side for uh, Masson, I believe, is the broadcast network affiliated with the Orioles, MASN. And as the story goes from Awful Announcing, who posted the clip earlier today of Kevin Brown's pregame comments on the Orioles' recent record against the Rays ahead of a series finale back on July 23rd. And in the tweet, they put sources tell AA, which is Awful Announcing, that these comments led to Brown's current indefinite suspension from Orioles broadcasts. And then The Athletic put out a quick post on the situation, I guess corroborating the report from Awful Announcing, where essentially what happened was, and you can go to Awful Announcing's Twitter and listen to the 59-second clip of Kevin Brown. I was going to play it on the podcast, but then as I was going through it, there's some background music in the middle of it that's going to get me in trouble with YouTube, so I'm not going to play it on the podcast, but Awful Announcing's Twitter has been all over it. You've probably seen the clip by now. And I think everybody's initial reaction was the same thing. Like, well, there's no way this is all that he said because all he's doing is basically reading from, it sounds like a press release practically. Like it's not, it's very innocuous, basically giving out the information on the Baltimore Orioles record against the Tampa Bay Rays at Tropicana Field over the last however many years, basically saying toward the end of the little, the little 59 second clip, that the Orioles are 3-18 and at Tropicana Field since whatever year, but this year they've already won three games, and so they, they've won as many games there this year as, as they did in the previous seven years or whatever it was, which he didn't even, even say that part. Like, he just gave the numbers, and it's the most innocuous thing in the world. Like I said, the, the reaction was pretty universal. That's like the reporting is there. If you read Awful Announcing and you read The Athletic, in the Athletic article, sources confirmed the decision to The Athletic on Monday. Awful announcing first reported the news. Like, this is being reported. It's not like a blog that is getting the wrong information and we don't have all the info at our disposal. It's pretty much Baltimore Orioles announcer Kevin Brown was removed from the team's broadcast back on July 23rd or after the comment made on July 23rd. And the reason for it was him pointing out on the broadcast that the Orioles had won more games at Tampa's Tropicana Field in 2023 than the last three years combined. That's reading from the Athletic Post that was uh, put up there on their site earlier today. And you remember me saying the part about it sounds like he's basically reading from a press release. It was so bland. It wasn't like he was giving an opinion. The Orioles suck. Why can't they win at Tampa? Like, not at all what it was, was basically talking about the turnaround. Baltimore's in first place this year, one of baseball's most exciting teams. As we all know, they were horrible for a long, long time, and now they're not. It's everybody's favorite tanking story, the rags to riches. But ownership there, you know, they haven't spent money. And apparently, they don't like people calling any attention to the fact that they were one time not that good in the standings. And evidently, owner Johnny Angelos does not like that being pointed out. Even though it was people on his own staff that did it. Because as uh, Bridger Oli mentions in the Athletic article, the comment made by Kevin Brown on the broadcast was backed up in the July 23rd game notes which were put together by the team's public relations staff. Quote, the Orioles have won three of the first five games at the Trop this season after winning three of the 21 games played in St. Petersburg from 2020 to 2022. The game notes said. 
It's a direct quote from the game notes. And basically, Kevin Brown goes on the air and reads it. And the Masson production team had a graphic that went with it. Now, maybe the most inflammatory part of the entire thing, and I haven't seen very many other people talking about this aspect of it, which doesn't make it any better from John Angelos' side of things, that you're an owner who, as Brittany pointed out, Brittany Giroli in the athletic article, that despite it being in the game notes, ownership took exception to Brown pointing it out, sources said, believing it made them sound cheap. Yeah, you're the owner, John Angelos. Baltimore ranks 29th in Major League Baseball in payroll this season. And that's when they're winning. They've been at the bottom for years and years. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. So ownership is so focused in the first winning season. They may have had a winning record last year, but this is the first season that they're actually like have designs on making and doing something in the playoffs. Remember last trade deadline, they were playing pretty well, but they traded Trey Mancini at the deadline, still selling at the deadline despite being in a good position. And you don't want to sound cheap on your broadcast? Well, don't be cheap. That's number one. But it shows how like small and petty and simple-minded you'd have to be as an owner to see that on your broadcast and get upset about it to the extent that the broadcaster is the one who gets punished. As I was getting ready to say, the one part that you could even call remotely inflammatory, the graphic that was put on the screen as Kevin Brown is talking, and again, Awful Announcing has the clip on their Twitter. I can't play it here because there's music in the background and I won't make any money on the YouTube video if I put that on there. But the headline on the graphic said, Tropical Depression. And it gave the stats of the the Orioles of the previous three seasons, bad at the trop, now they're playing okay, they're in first place, life is good. That was the whole thing. It was like the most innocuous pregame segment that you could possibly imagine for a team that has been losing for a long time and now they're winning and have a chance to win their fourth game of the season at this ballpark that they haven't done a lot of winning in the last three years. Like I said, very innocuous. But as the owner, how small-minded do you have to be? I'm trying to avoid like the the harsh criticisms and like the name-calling, but how stupid do you have to be to look at the screen and you see tropical depression and that makes you sad and so you say the broadcaster who was who happened to be speaking during the segment is a guy that has to be suspended indefinitely. And it goes on for a couple of weeks. I think he he did a radio series Kevin Brown did but hasn't been on the TV broadcast since that July 23rd comment and then hasn't been on any of the broadcasts at all, radio or TV side, since the 26th of July. So a couple of weeks go by and people are like, hey, where's where's the main broadcaster? What's going on with that? And then it kind of, you know, people dig into it and find out, oh, this is what's going on. But like, how dumb do you have to be to have just the comments that were put together by your PR staff in your game notes? That's your That's your team employees putting it there. Kevin Brown didn't dig this stat up on his own. The production folks at Masson certainly had access to those game notes, probably saw it in your game notes, John Angelos, and put it in their broadcast as a way to highlight the turnaround of the team, but you're worried that it might make you sound cheap. Well, yeah, that kind of stands on its own, doesn't it? 
Orioles ownership is cheap. They're 29th in payroll in Major League Baseball this year. And they have lost incessantly for half a decade. I mean, I don't have the Orioles season results in front of me. Their record by year. But I know it's been bad. It's been bleak for a while. Let's pull it up. Orioles won 83 games last year. It was their first winning season since 2016 before that. The win-loss records from 2017 to 2021 are as follows. 75 and 87. In 2018, they were 47 and 115. Then they were 54 and 108. And then in the COVID year, 25 and 35, which is a 417 win percentage. Still pretty bad. Even worse in 2021 when they went 52 and 110. So, yeah, you had a team that went five full seasons without a winning record. And those five seasons look kind of like St. Louis Rams winning percentage of the really dark years for the football fans in the crowd. And you're worried about people maybe might have the impression that you're cheap. Well, okay. I wonder where they might get that from. Now they've got a winning team because they've got a lot of smart people in their front office. They've been cheap on the payroll, but they're getting it right with the player development staff. I mean, that's they're certainly turning it around and have the best farm system in baseball, basically. I don't think there would be many outlets that would dispute that. But, like, how can you not understand that just because the broadcaster is the guy that says it, that this was, it's not like he went rogue. And again, it's not like he even gave an opinion. Like, this is so cut and dry that John Angelos is the guy that's in the wrong here. Kevin Brown is not in the wrong. You've seen from around baseball the support coming out. Jason Benetti made a really good comment on the uh, the White Sox broadcast. He's a great baseball broadcaster. The guys at SNY came out with, uh, Gary Cohen came out with like a monologue talking about it. Here's the, uh, this is courtesy of the NBC White Sox Twitter account. White Sox talk. Jason Benetti taking shots at the Orioles. It's about 17 seconds long. Listen to the clip and what you hear right at the very end. They actually played Baltimore pretty well. They were 6-7 and seven against the Orioles this year. So they lost seven times, but they did beat Baltimore six times, which I hope I don't get suspended by the Orioles for saying that. There was Jason Benetti on a White Sox broadcast today just taking a shot, taking a jab, which is totally deserved. Orioles ownership didn't want to look cheap. They didn't want to be put in a bad light. Well, guess what? Now the entire baseball world knows you're a laughingstock. That's embarrassing. And what they've done is they've taken the very positive attention that could be placed on their players and their team for overtaking the Rays and getting to the first place spot in the American League East, a really good division. They've taken all that positivity away because now everybody's focusing on the negative thing that they did, and it was dumb. And I'm seeing news stories now that the suspension is going to be lifted and Kevin Brown will return to broadcast, which he should. Should have never had to be forced to leave in the first place. But it's just, I mean, it's just a bad look all the way around. So there's, again, it doesn't seem like there's any more to this story. It's not like Kevin Brown was doing anything behind the scenes that he wasn't supposed to be doing or saying anything that he wasn't supposed to be saying. It seems pretty straightforward that the owner of the Orioles is just very small-minded and and very uh, egotistical and hypocritical. Because, like, again, if you don't want to be perceived in a certain way, don't consistently act that way for seven years in a row and you know, maybe people won't have that impression of you. I think it's pretty simple. Let me know what your thoughts, though, in the YouTube comment section below. Let me know on Twitter, at Schaefer 12 what do you think about this whole situation? Like, rarely do you see a situation so universal in the way that people respond to it, but the entire baseball world seems to be on the same side with this one. 
So that's one I wanted to get to right away tonight on Be Shave Daily. Uh, appreciate you guys for being here. Usually we talk a lot of Cardinals, and we will the rest of this episode, but that was something that I thought, well, that's strange. What's the deal with these Orioles? Ownership, man. Unbelievable. So if there's any point to this that I am missing or, or didn't highlight well enough, uh, appreciate the question, Eric, and the opportunity to talk about the topic. But let me know if there's something I'm missing here, guys, because it seems pretty straightforward to me. Really a pathetic situation, but uh, one that I think the Orioles are going to realize the misstep and, and try to put it behind them. But again, it's not its not like Kevin Brown decided, oh, here's what I'm going to say. Let's pretend it was inflammatory. It wasn't. Like I said, maybe the, the graphic, tropical depression, but Kevin Brown didn't put that up. If you want to fire a production assistant, like that's lame. But that would at least be like accurate to what you're mad about. Like, is it possible that he's just so so petty, so rage induced that he sees that and here's what's being described on the screen, but just looks at it and goes, why are they saying tropical depression about my team? Fire somebody over this. It's like there were at least a dozen people probably involved in putting that segment together from your own PR staff with the game notes on July 23rd to everybody involved in that broadcast. So whatever, man, that's a wild one to me. That's a wild one to me. Let's though talk some Cardinals baseball switching gears here because I believe the majority of the rest of the questions, if not all of them were pertaining to the St. Louis ball club. Yeah. Christian had asked about the uh, Kevin Brown situation as well. Unfiltered. He wanted my unfiltered response. Hopefully I gave it as best as I could with some candor there, but let's start with this from Josie. Now who says, in your opinion, what do you envision the Cardinals realistically doing this off season? Do we see, the front office slash owners actually dish out the money for free agent signings, or do we see big trades for pitching? And sorry, I have a lot. She says, do you think we see any big names traded away? So this will be a good launching point from Josie because I think she kind of covers the bases here for everything that we would look to in terms of what the podcast will be about almost on a daily basis from like late October. Well, after the world series. So November 1st or whenever the world series ends till late January, like what we'll be talking about the entire offseason is, okay, the Cardinals have said 2024 they're going to compend. Compend? It's not a word. They're going to, let me pick a word here that starts with C. They're going to either compete or they're going to contend. If I'm doing this podcast, I've got to pick which word I cannot just combine them into two words and make like an amalgamation and have it be one word. I tried to do that in the Cardinals clubhouse the other day too. I was standing next to Benjamin Hockman. We'd just come out of Ali Marmel's office, but I hadn't said anything in a one-on-one conversation to Benjamin Hockman yet at that point. He had been talking to Miles Michaelis. I, so I just went up to say hello, essentially, even though we'd been in the same room for like a half an hour. And I, what did I say to him? I said, Hey, what's up, Hoxson? And he kind of looked at me and I said, so what happened there is I was going for either Hockman or Hoxie and I couldn't decide which one. And so it came out Hoxson and I just did it again there. The Cardinals have said they will contend or compete. They kind of mean the same things in 2024. But looking at this team, the way that it is constructed now, we know some changes will need to be made. The lineup, I think, is really good and has a chance to be even better as you get guys like Gorman, Walker, a little bit more exposure, a little bit more experience. Mason Wynn, probably a part of the mix next year. Hopefully you don't see too much of a decline from guys like Arnado Goldschmidt. I know Goldie's been having a little bit of a rough go recently, but you look at his season-long numbers, Every month, he's had a positive weighted runs created plus. This month, it's been rough. He's done this before in the past. I'm still on 
the side of Goldschmidt will figure it out, even as, as he approaches age 36. So I'm looking at this Cardinals lineup thinking they'll be pretty good next year. Yes, Josie mentions a part of it that could be uncomfortable. Do we see any big names traded? Do the Cardinals trade away any names? If they do, Josie, it's to try and get the pitching to happen. Big trades for pitching is going to equal position players dealt away. Because when you think about the pitching that they might have to trade to get pitching, it's not... I mean, you may have to do that too. You may have to throw in Tink Hentz. You may have to throw in Graceffo, if that's what other teams are, are after. You may have to kind of replace replenish the pitching that you take from the other team while you upgrade their offense. That might be the way the trade would happen, and it depends on the valuation of the Cardinals players according to teams elsewhere in the league. How do they view Tommy Edmond? They probably view him below Nolan Gorman and Brendan Donovan in the pecking order. When you think about contract and salary and years of team control and overall impact potential, like Gorman could hit 40 home runs in a year. He might hit that many this year. If he gets on a roll late, Brendan Donovan can be an 800 or better OPS as a leadoff man, and he can win a gold glove as a utility man. He's having his surgery and he'll be good to go by spring training is the thought, certainly by opening day. How do they view Edmund in that context? What do the Cardinals want to do? I mean, you have a lot of guys that kind of do some similar things for you, but they all do valuable things. But what you don't have is pitchers who do valuable things up and down that rotation. Anyway, you've got a lot of questions. Josie wants to know realistically what they would do, in my opinion. Well, they have to sign some pitching. And this kind of touches on a a question that nerds on the bat posed. Said a little late, but how do you see the Cardinals approaching pitchers who have received a qualifying offer this winter? They'll be picking higher than they have in quite some time, so I can't imagine they're eager to forfeit that pick or their bonus pool. I think it's like 500000 when it comes to the bonus pool for what would be a a second-round compensatory pick. The Cardinals cannot lose their first-round pick. That's a a newer change to the rule. I don't know when they implemented that, but you'd lose your second-highest pick. So if you had, for whatever reason, two first-round picks, you'd lose your second one. The Cardinals will have just their standard first-round pick, their standard second-round pick. This past year, they lost their second-round pick after signing Wilson Contreras. For a team that is saying, we are going to have to delve into free agency, in order to address the rotation. Well, I can answer that part of your question, Josie. I think they'll do that. I think they'll delve into free agency to address the rotation. And when they do, you can probably bet it's going to be a $50 million or more salary, which I think is is the basis for losing the highest possible comp- compensatory pick. And the Cardinals are going to have to do that, probably. But I think it's like 500000 or so in terms of allocation from the bonus pool. So when we just say, oh, the Cardinals are going to have to spend, they're going to spend, nerds on the bat brings up a great point. That's the other side to that, is you're going to lose a draft pick when you do that unless, I love how Josie's question kind of sets up everything else it was asked. Unless, as Tyler asks, do you think it's a realistic option for the Cardinals to go sign one or both of the Japanese pitchers who will post this winter, or will they more likely stick with known commodities from MLB to fill the open rotation spots? See, that could be the way the Cardinals go about this, and I and I would have to believe it would be very attractive. I'm probably going to get the names wrong, but I believe it's Yoshi Yamamoto and Shota Imanaga are the two primary pitchers that we're talking about coming from Japan, potentially posting in MLB this offseason and being available to sign for major league teams. 
that's you're going to have to pay a, a premium on that, obviously, because the posting system and however that ends up going down. But is it is it better to pay cash extra money than you'd have to than it is to give up draft picks? That might be the answer. Yoshinobu Yamamoto is uh, 24 years old. He turns 25 in just a couple of weeks. Pitcher in Japan. I believe he was the guy that was thrown like 102 in the World Baseball Classic. And then I believe Imanaga was the lefty who's 29 years old, about to turn 30 later this month. September 1st, actually, is his 30th birthday. And I believe he pitched the finale in the World Baseball Classic against Team USA. And he's going to be available, and Yamamoto is going to be available to post. I'm reading this from MLB Trade Rumors. The MLB team that eventually signs Yamamoto would need to pay the Buffaloes, his current teams in Nippon Professional Baseball, I believe, a fee that is equal to 20% of the contract's first $25 million, plus 17.5% of the next $25 million, and 15% of any dollar committed thereafter. On, say, a $150 million contract, which MLB Trade Rumors says is a purely speculative number for the sake of an example, because we got to come up with a hypothetical to give you an idea. Could this guy make $150 million? I think probably so, but let's just go with it for a minute. It could ultimately prove not to be enough. But it would come out to about a $24 million posting fee that you'd have to pay to Yamamoto's team in Japan on top of whatever you're paying him. So you're talking about a huge number. At that point, I mean, Shohei Otani also hits. Why don't you just, whatever you're paying this other guy, let's say it's $150 million plus that 24 in change. So let's call it $175 million even. Stick with me for a minute. Let's say that would be like a six-year contract, but you're getting Otani for the same amount for three years, like $55, $60 million a year. That's probably not enough. I think you can sign a longer contract than that for probably in the neighborhood of that average annual value. My point is it'd be cool for the Cardinals to have Otani, and you don't disagree, so quiet down. No, I don't think it's realistic for Otani to happen. But these other pitchers from Japan, I think that's an avenue the Cardinals should explore because it pertains back to the question from Josie, what do we realistically expect the Cardinals to do? Well, Nerds on the Bat mentions, hey, the compensatory pick is going to be a problem. You want the Cardinals to lose another second-round pick and the bonus pool associated? That offered some constraints to the Cardinals' draft process this year to not have that money available to allocate as they saw fit. But if you sign guys from Japan, there's no draft pick compensation. You just got to pay them off. Shoto Imanaga, Yoshinobu, Yamamoto. Yamamoto is the one that's guy's going to be about 25 years old. He's got a 1.67 ERA in uh, in Japan this year, 10-4 record. Has thrown 108 innings and 114 strikeouts. He throws smoke. He's a right-hander. And then the left-hander, Imanaga. 29 going on 30, 1.99 ERA this season in Japan. 99 innings, 112 Ks. So do I think it's realistic for the Cardinals front office to sign both these guys? Yeah, I mean, financially it is. Do I think it's realistic that it's going to happen? No. No, but let's say one of them makes 25 mil, the other one makes, let's say, 20 mil, 45, 50. Like, if you would go $50 million to resolve 40% of your rotation for the next five years, 50 million bucks a year. Wouldn't you do that? Are these guys going to be studs? I don't know, but I think they'll be pretty solid pitchers. We've seen some good success recently from teams going this route. 
How about the Mets and Kodai Senga? The one of the only plans that have worked out for them this year. He's been ridiculous with the ghost fork. I think he pitched again on Monday and won a game against the Cubs, if I'm not mistaken. He came from pitching in Japan. Could be very interesting if the Cardinals decide to go that route and not have to give up the draft pick. I'm thinking it's realistic to expect they could sign one of those two guys. The problem is, who are you having to compete against in terms of other teams having interest? I do think, I don't know how much interaction Lars Nupar had with either of these players from the World Baseball Classic, but that can't hurt. We always talk about it in the context of Shohei Otani and his relationship with Lars Nupar, but maybe maybe Lars Nupar is able to to sell a couple of these guys on, on St. Louis when they go to post for Major League Baseball. That could be interesting. But I am. I think that I think going that route and getting one of those guys, the younger guy, the 25-year-old, probably more expensive because he's basically settling right into his prime at this point where Imanaga going on 30 years old, that's more the Cardinal speed, right? Because they figure they could get him for a little, little cheaper, maybe a little shorter term. We'll see what they end up doing, but that's kind of the direction I would look first and foremost for, for you guys asking about, well, what's realistic? They have to sign an ace. They have to sign a frontline starter and a guy with a one-point-some-odd ERA, even though it's in a different league. That's not a bad place to start if you're trying to hunt for some value. I can see it being a very sensible move by the Cardinals. But then I'm getting questions too. Okay, people want to know about Aaron Nola. Matthew says, thoughts on a long-term deal for Nola going after other starters like Herman Marquez, Martin Perez this winter. Pitching is there this winter if the Cardinals want it. And the Cardinals want it. The Cardinals, I mean, they more than want it. I think it's almost not the right way to describe it is to say that they want it. They need it. They didn't, they didn't choose to have three holes in their rotation. I mean, they sort of did by their actions trading away Montgomery and Flaherty, not offering extensions to Montgomery in spring training, things like that. Like, they they put themselves in this spot, but they didn't pick for everybody that they hope to rely upon pitching this year after the main guys to kind of stumble or get injured or whatever's happened. They don't have the depth. And so they've got Michaelis, they've got Mats that are going to be in the rotation next year. I've described it like Michaelis should be your number three, Mats your number four, and maybe even Matt's your number five. But the way Matt's is pitching right now, that's okay if he's your number four. Get a lefty in the rotation. Maybe find one more lefty. Maybe it's Imanaga from Japan. Maybe he slots in as your number one or your number two. But that's what you have to find is a number one and a number two. And then you can talk about, do you let Zach Thompson, Libertor, Dakota Hudson, McGreevy, Graceffo, DrewRom.com, do you let all these guys compete? for the number five spot, or do you sign a Martin Perez, a Herman Marquez on a shorter term contract? And you say, that's going to be kind of a caboose to the rotation. It'll cost us a little bit, but it'll be worth it because when somebody gets hurt in spring training, that's when the big competition that's ensuing for the number six spot ends up actually becoming guys competing for your opening day rotation because injuries do happen. You you cannot just play in a five man rotation and go, all right, we're good because you're going to lose one of those guys before opening day. It happens every year. Matthew asking about Aaron Nola is interesting. I think he's a guy that's probably going to make more money than the Cardinals are going to be comfortable giving to him, but when has that not been the case for the Cardinals and just about anybody when you're talking about free agency? He's 9-8 and with a 4.58 ERA this year, has given up a league-leading 26 home runs in 143 in a third inning, so he is a workhorse guy. He'll probably get to 200 innings, which he did last year as well for Philadelphia. 
147 strikeouts in 143 innings. The K rate's down for him compared to what it's been in recent seasons. His Ks per nine for his career is right on 10. This year, it's only 9.2. Last few years, 12.1, 11.1, 10.3, now 9.2. It's gone down each of the last three years for Aaron Nola. And the ERA is 4.58. So what's that guy getting? I mean, he's probably getting a $100 million contract as long as he's getting at least five years. He'll be at least $20 million a year, probably more like 23 to 25 to 27. Even the way he's performing, even at age 30, teams are going to need pitching. He's going to be one of the biggest strikeout-type arms on the on the list, and he's having a down year relative to his standards, but I don't think it's going to cost him all that much money, being honest. So do the Cardinals go that route? You know he's going to get a qualifying offer. Do you nuke your second-round pick for Aaron Nola, who's got a four-and-a-half ERA this year? I don't know. He, he represents the swing and miss that you're looking for, but he also represents the ERAs that you already have. That's what's going to be really tough about this. The Cardinals are going to have to think about pitching, I think, in a little bit of a different way. You, you got to look deeper than, well, his ERA is this. Do we want him? Do we not? you gotta, you got to make some other decisions. Even his FIP, fielding independent pitching, is 4.30. But do you look at that as, oh, he's having a down year, or he's 30 years old, now he's having his decline. Maybe he's just having a down year. Maybe the Cardinals can identify the reasons behind that and get the most out of it. There are teams out there that have those types of pitching development staffs that can do that. What do the Cardinals do? How do they approach a guy like Aaron Nola? My expectation is too big of a name for them to really get involved in. There's going to be a team that's going to going to outmuscle, outbid East Coast team, West Coast team. That's kind of the world the Cardinals have been in. So that's like my natural inclination of how I think about this, but also we know the Cardinals have got to do things differently. They know they have to. It's realistic to think that the Cardinals are going to to try and answer Josie's question, which is turning into what this this whole podcast has really been because it's a great overarching question. We get into the other ones as we go. Jay Paul asks where Drew Rahm is, says he's not on any of the Cardinal affiliate rosters in the MLB prospect page for the Cardinals, says he's in MLB, which we have not seen. Uh, maybe he's in Tampa. Maybe that just happened. But I tried to look on the MLB website, the MILB website, and I, I can't find Drew Rom either. Maybe he is on DrewRom.com. I do not know. I wish I could answer your question, Jay. But I don't know the answer to that one. But Josie's is the one we're trying to circle the drain on here a little bit. Will they dish out the money for free agent signings? Josie, they will. I think they're going to sign the biggest free agent contract ever doled out to a player that had not previously played for the Cardinals. That's what Wilson Contreras just was at $87.5 million. I think whatever ace pitcher they sign, that they're going to exceed that. Maybe that's lofty. Maybe I am. Maybe that's more wishful thinking because I know Cardinals fans want to see that happen. I think it needs to happen. I mean, Aaron Nola is going to make that kind of money. Certainly the younger Japanese pitcher, Yamamoto, is going to make that, that kind of money. Imanaga, I think, will. It depends on how long his deal is. But I imagine he'll be like $20 million per over five years or so with a posting fee to boot. So, I mean, any of the guys worth having, if you're going to, if you're going to be able to say, Hey, this is our number one, you've either got to trade for that guy or you got to sign him and it's going to cost you real money. And if you trade for him, it's going to cost you real players. Dylan Cease, do the White Sox blow it up this off season with everything going on with them and the turmoil? You could probably get Dylan Cease. It's going to cost you. Tink Hentz and, or Gordon Graceffo and a couple good hitters. Cardinals probably don't want to make that deal. How about the Mariners? You can, circle back with them, but they don't probably want to trade you Logan Gilbert. It's so funny. Like I get these responses from Cardinals fans who are like, 
How could you possibly talk about I see it on the YouTube comment section, youtube.com slash at for 12 Subscribe to the channel for Daily Cardinals Talk. Let your comments be known. I like the comments, but sometimes when I see the ones that are like, you're so stupid for why would you talk about trading Nolan Gorman? That's idiotic. Listen, that's not me advocating to trade Nolan Gorman. That's me telling you what it's going to take to have meaningful upgrades in the rotation. Like, you have to trade the good players that you shouldn't want to trade away to fix the hole on the team, which is the pitching rotation. And when you happen to have guys like Brendan Donovan that can fill in at second base, who are really good players, or Tommy Edmond, who could do the same if you have Mason win at short, it makes a guy like Gorman positionally more expendable. Never is 40 home runs from the left side of the plate expendable. I get it. But if you were able to backfill with a guy like Donovan or Edmund playing second, and you were able to get Logan Gilbert and Matt Brash for Gorman, like that's kind of the, the big hypothetical that I've thrown out a couple of times, I would say it would need to be at least that type of return in pitching to get me to think about it if I'm the Cardinals. And if I'm the Mariners, I'd be like, and also what pitching are you sending us back? Because you can't just expect we're going to give you two young controllable arms and you're not going to give anybody back on the pitching side. Yeah, you probably still have to give up a, a prospect that they can replenish their farm system with from the pitching side. So it's painful to do the trade route. The Cardinals are probably going to try to send somebody lesser, right? They don't want to trade Tommy Edmond or they don't want to trade Alec Burleson, Dylan Carlson, but like Tom, Tyler O'Neill, depending on how that situation resolves. They're not just trying to kick these guys off the bridge, but if another team says we value that player and we got a, the starting pitcher who can be your number three for two years, he's under two years of control. Those are the, the types of smaller deals. The Cardinals are going to look to make. I don't know if they will be successful in making one of them or if they'll have to really hone in on free agency because that could be uncomfortable. You in free agency, you often end up paying the sticker shock. The market value ends up being quite a bit for guys that they might not excite you. Four years, $44 million. How many of you were like, all right, we got Steven Matz. I don't know what the reaction was from you guys. I talked about it at the time and said, well, they know this lockout's coming. At least they got this cost certainty. But you're not throwing up a banner for cost certainty. Now you're seeing Steven Matz perform, and it's looking like a better deal over the past couple of weeks than it ever had before. But if the Cardinals make two more signings like that in the offseason – and they come into February, or, or let's even say January winter warm-up, and they're saying, hey, look, we said we'd fix the pitching, and we've done that. We have Steven Matz, Miles Michaelis, Ramon Marquez, Martin Perez, and we like that Matthew Libertor. He's going to be our number five, but maybe Dakota Hudson beats him out. Or Zach Thompson. Remember, he struck out eight that one time. Like, if that's the story that gets told in January at Bush Stadium winter warm-up 2024, I'm going to have a hard time going you know, this doesn't feel that different from last year. What makes it different? That's going to be the question. So unless they spend or trade in a way that feels different, it might not be different. And to do that, it's going to, you're going to have to incur risk. The Cardinals have been averse to those types of risks. And now I think it's going to have to be different. Otherwise, if it's not different, why do the whole dog and pony show and say, Arenado is a cornerstone. Goldsmith's a cornerstone. We're not trading those guys because we want to contend next year. If you want to contend in 2024, you have to do something demonstrably different with the pitching. If you don't, it's going to be the same result. And I don't mean sign one guy to an $80 million contract for four years, 20, but have it be a guy who's, you know, been basically the number three in the rotation on the last team he played for. And then you, you, you trade, I don't know, 
you trade Dylan Carlson for a guy who's was pretty good in AAA, but he kind of has, has been rough so far in the big leagues, and maybe he'll be rough again for you, but he's your number five because that's what you got to have. But then you got all the rest of the guys competing, Libertor, Graceffo, McGreevy. Maybe one of those guys will be good. Like, if that's what they do, that's fine. I mean, it's not, but it's not different. And they're acting like it's going to be different because they're counting on competing this year in 2024. That's the rub. That's going to be the biggest conversation of the offseason. There will be others that take place, but it's all going to be about how many resources and, and how, you know, what type of resource and, and how much of them are you going to be willing to devote to starting pitching? Because they got to fix the pitching. Is it realistic to sign one or both of the Japanese pitchers, Tyler? Yeah, it's realistic. But is that what they're going to do? I feel like Mosellock, you know, his contract runs through 2025. We've talked a lot about that. I don't think he'll be around beyond that. So you're talking two more years, basically, after this one. Why not just go for it? You got to get the, the blessing for Bill DeWitt. A lot of times I think things get kind of pinned on John Mosellock or even Ollie Marmel at a lower level. Only Marmel's middle management when it comes to the St. Louis Cardinals hierarchy. John Mosellock's in charge, but Bill DeWitt's the boss. Sometimes I think Mo or Ollie get charged with things that they might be beyond their control because we don't really know what the edict from, from up top is. Mo said, we're going to raise the payroll. And they did, I guess, but they didn't raise it in terms of being competitive with the rest of the league. I think they dropped to 16th in payroll for this year. Mo's got to be careful with what he says going into this offseason in November. I mean, he's already made some bold statements about they're going to pursue pitching and free agency. He knows that's going to have to happen. If he boxes himself into that, he's got to have to deliver in order to get the credit for delivering. And like he said with the catcher situation, we're going to get a catcher and we're going to prioritize it. He delivered that. They spent a lot of money on catcher, but was it the most effective way to go about catcher? Did you win the offseason? I guess so, but how has it panned out? because they've used Contreras as a scapegoat for a lot of the things that have gone wrong. You can kind of see the thread unspooling there. If it happens in a similar way with this pitching thing next year, that's when it's okay to, I mean, you could be worried now if you want to, but I'll be sounding the alarms on y'all's behalf if that happens again next year and we don't see a a meaningfully different approach to pitching and how they come up with fielding that rotation for next year. So I know that was kind of three listener questions that I was circling the drain on simultaneously, but it felt like all of them fit together and flowed within one another, and so I felt like that's the way to go about it. But let me get back to the rest of the questions from Twitter. It's at bshafer12 on Twitter. As I'm scrolling to pull this tweet back up because I accidentally closed it out, I want to mention that Immaculate Grid was my was my jam today. I finally got to use my, my sleeper cell pick, Joe Hudson, because there was a Cardinals-Angels category, and when I put it in this morning, it was 0.006%, which means like me and one other dude had probably used Joe Hudson to that point in the day. I think it went up to 0.009 later on. I haven't checked recently. Ever since I revealed it, maybe more people thought to use it, but I was excited about that. I got the grid done for the first time. Every time I do it, I end up missing a couple, and then I kind of just give up. But today, I stuck with it, so that was exciting for me. Okay, I feel like as we're talking long-range Cardinals plans heading into 2024, Mike's question next up makes a lot of sense. If it were up to you, how many and which position players, understanding their value and what the return would be for each, would you trade this offseason? So that already airs into a speculative territory, Mike, because we don't know exactly their value and what the return would be, but I can at least give you my opinion. 
I would say that externally, teams would rank Brendan Donovan as highly as Nolan Gorman, just in a different way, though. Some teams might prefer Brendan Donovan to Nolan Gorman on their team, depending on their team needs. If you have a lot of power, but you need a guy that's a leadoff type, and you need the versatility and the plus defensive play everywhere, then maybe Donovan's your guy. I think both of those guys would be very valuable in trade. I don't think Donovan is just this like, oh, he's like this utility guy. He's this Skip Schumacher who's like a good player. But no, Donovan is a a tier above. He's a cut above to me. The Cardinals are going to value him as such, which is why I would be surprised to see him traded. Gorman, I think, is just as valuable, maybe more, depending on the consistency of his bat. We've had a lot of conversations about Gorman this year, which is like, Nobody's doubting the 30, 35, maybe 40 home run power on a given season. What's the OPS? How long does he go where he slumps before turning it around? It's a question that I asked Ollie Marmel this weekend. Like, what have they noticed about the way he goes about it? And he just says his demeanor has been so good. His consistency in his approach has been so good that maybe that long, long-term long prolonged slumping element of Nolan Gorman's game is one that you don't see as much in the future. Even, I think, this year compared to last year, he's already been able to diminish those periods, which is why the numbers are better, more consistency. If he continues to progress that way, maybe he is that guy who's going to OPS 825 or 830 or 850 for his career. If that's what he is, rather than the guy that's going to OPS 775 and hit the same amount of home runs, but not as good of a batting average, not as good of an on-base, not as consistent of an overall hitter, that's... The question I think the Cardinals internally have got to decide upon Nolan Gorman and say, if we think it's more like the 775 and he's always going to have those holes in his game, he he won't be that complete hitter for 10 years, then maybe you can capitalize on that if there's a team that looks at him differently. If you, And that's just like asset management. If you like something, if you appreciate an asset or believe in an asset more than another team does or another business does, why would you sell that asset to them? you think it's going to go up. You think it's going to appreciate. So why would you get rid of it? Whereas if you think the market value for this is higher than what we actually think it's going to become, that would be an opportunity to leverage your position on that asset and sell. It's a business-oriented mindset. It's an overly simplified mindset, but it's kind of what the Cardinals have to decide about when it comes to these players in the offseason. But I think they don't want to trade either of Gorman or Donovan. I don't think they want to trade Tommy Edmond either, though, but if you do the math on it, you can go, okay, Less team control, a little bit less offensively. He's been a league average hitter instead of an above average one. But the, the stolen base stuff, I think, makes him above average as well. Winning player, Ollie Marmel marveling this weekend, talking about, I don't think he needs to get into center field right now, even if Mason wins coming in a couple of weeks, because he was kind of asked about, do you think you want to see what it looks like for Tommy in center? Make sure he's fresh out there if and when wins should arrive. That could push Tommy to the outfield. And Ollie said, no, I think we... Just know that if we need to use him out there, he'll be able to pick it right back up just like he did the first time. And we want to see Dylan Carlson out there as much as we can. That would obviously take away from his playing time if they they ran Tommy out there. And you're obviously playing like Fermin or Mata or whomever at shortstop, not getting the best out of, out of your lineup that way either. But I, I say all that to say that Ollie Marmel and the Cardinals really like Tommy Edmond, but he's a little bit lower because he's got less team control and you got to pay him more sooner. That just stands to reason, and and maybe offensively he's a little bit behind what you would expect from those other guys because Tommy from the left side facing right-handed pitching 
not quite as adept as the two left-handed bats who can crush right-handed pitching, whether it's Donovan or Gorman. Then there's kind of getting to the outfielders. Dylan Carlson, guy I really like, but if the Cardinals can find a way to get a a guy they can put in their rotation and they believe can be at least a mid-rotation guy and he's got some control, I think the Cardinals will make that trade. I'm not telling you I love it, but look, this logjam in the outfield is real. And if they're going to put their weight behind Tyler O'Neill, which maybe they don't, maybe they see him play well down the stretch and that's a guy they trade. But it doesn't really matter what I think. It's what other MLB teams think to get to the crux of, of Mike's question here. Other MLB teams are going to decide. It's not going to be up to me and it's not really going to be up to the Cardinals. They've got to trade an outfielder. Mike, you asked how many and which position players would you trade? Well, I would trade an outfielder. I would trade Carlson or O'Neill, and it's the answer to which one is going to depend on what you're being offered. you got to get the best pitching you can. If you're packaging those guys, one with a pitcher, whatever it ends up being, that's the approach. And I, I think there are various factors. For O'Neill, it's okay. If you like him and he looks good again down the stretch and you want to build around him for next year, you can do that. But also, do you jump right into a contract extension with him because it'll be his last year before his walk year? in 2024. Carlson's got more time, but you don't necessarily know what you're going to get as a left-handed batter against right-handed pitching. You haven't let him play in that capacity recently, but the reason for that is because you got too many outfielders. So it's tough. It's really, really tricky to figure which one they'll trade. I think they'll trade one of them, and I think that's probably right. I think you have to, especially if Walker's going to remain an outfielder. You should put him in right. Newt Barr, they feel like can play center, but he can also play left or right if he needed to. And then they're not trading those guys. They're not trading Walker and Newt And I agree with that. Alec Burleson. I would not trade Alec Burleson either unless you're getting the the type of pitcher that when the trade gets posted on Twitter, everybody goes, holy W, what a win. How'd they pull that guy for Burleson? If that's the reaction, then okay, fine. Otherwise, I think Burleson's more valuable to the Cardinals than he is in a trade. And that's not... Something I would have said a few months ago, but I'm like I've been saying, I'm seeing the light. I even told I told Holly Marmel I'm coming around on Burleson. And he said, Oh, you're coming around. Wow. Nice of you to join us. But I said, now listen, like it's a case of you go early season and see the way those at bats were being distributed with Walker on this team as well, with O'Neill having to play center, like everything that they were insisting upon. I who had the emotional energy to go. Yeah, Alec Burleson should be in this outfield too when he's a first baseman. Defensively, it's not a great fit. If baseball lineups had two DHs in them, man, it'd be great to have a Burleson on your team because he's a left-handed batter who can hit right-handed pitching and does not strike out and is 24 years old and and the power is going to continue to grow for him. Alec Burleson, I'm buying the bat, man. Not the Batman, but I'm buying the bat, comma, man, on Alec Burleson. So that's not a guy that I would trade because I I don't anticipate the league valuing him the way the Cardinals do. Again, asset management. So what that means is you definitely have to trade Carlson or O'Neill or maybe both because then you could play Newbar in center. You could play Walker in right. You could play the outfielder that you get from wherever in left or in center. Or maybe, I don't think Burleson, Newbar, Walker is a legitimate outfield alignment. So that's not what I'm saying, but at least if Burleson's only your fourth outfielder, you can more easily, you could see more easily how they put that thing together. 
maybe it's a good platoon where Tommy Edmond plays center, Newpar plays left field, Walker plays right, and that's the way you do it against left-handed pitching because that's what where Edmond thrives. Mason wins your shortstop, so you're not missing anything there. And then against right-handed pitching, Burleson can either DH or you have trying to think here. You have to find a way to, to have a good defensive outfield, which means maybe signing like, I don't know who off the top of my head the answer is. That's going to be a different podcast because we're already pushing an hour on this one. But you sign a left-handed hitting center fielder like Kevin Kiermeyer. I don't think he's available on the market. Well, he's a free agent, it says, so maybe he will be. He signed a one-year $9 million deal. Maybe that's what you do. You sign like Kevin Kiermeyer. You trade O'Neal for because he's great down the stretch and you can get a pitcher for him. You trade Carlson with with Graceffo for another pitcher. This is all fantasy land stuff, I realize. But, hey, what else do we have to talk about? And then knowing that Tommy Edmonds is going to be your center fielder when you face left-handed pitching because he kills him. And we'll say Kevin Kiermeyer, but it can really be anybody that fits that profile. A left-handed hitter that is good defensively, so you can shift Newt Bar to a corner, which I think is better. And you can play Burleson as the DH. Actually, maybe the answer is just Brendan Donovan. Because then maybe Ed, or is Edmund not playing against right-handed pitching? I think he's more than just a utility guy that's only going to be a platoon bat. I think more of Tommy Edmund than that. But you do still have Donovan in this mix, and he can play left field. For the Cardinals to sign like a veteran center fielder, like a Kiermaier type, and he's been very solid this year. Three wins above replacement, hitting 274. Good defensive center fielder, although he's getting into his 30s now, I think, so maybe he won't be good in center for long. For the Cardinals to do that, though, they will have to to unload multiple outfielders before you can start adding one back to the mix. So don't don't hear what I'm not saying with that whole deal. But yeah, like the question is so difficult to answer, Mike. Which positions and who am I trading? I'm trading at least one outfielder, maybe multiple, if they want to realign the way they do the outfield thing with an eye on like finding more ABs for Burleson, which I don't think is a bad idea to find them. You just can't do it at the expense of defense. They've done too many things at the expense of defense this year. Not a good combo for a team that pitches to contact and didn't meaningfully address the pitching in the offseason. So there's some issues with that. But basically the way I approach it is I'm trading an outfielder because you have too many. Get the best value that you can, and that's the one you trade. That's who, that's how this it's decided. And you're trading a second baseman if and only if it's to get at least like a number two, maybe a number one in your rotation. Because all the second basemen I'm highly fond of, and I think the Cardinals are too. And if you don't trade one of those guys, like for every trade you don't make to get a, a starting pitcher, that's a guy you got to get in free agency. And that is like the most simple explanation I can give for the way I think the Cardinals should approach this offseason. Uh, Wayno's Hot Dogs, Dan, wants to know what the word is on McGreevy and Graceffo, both projected to be coming up this year or early next year. Doesn't seem to be any hype around them right now with homegrown pitching. Yeah, the homegrown pitching department is kind of stale. Uh, Tink Hens, I think you'll hear more about over the next 12 months for sure. Graceffo, kind of middling ERA in Memphis. Uh, McGreevy, good solid numbers, but not uh, the strikeout numbers will remind you of Dakota Hudson. And that's something that a lot of Cardinals fans don't want to be reminded about most of the time. Although Dak pitched really well last time. 
Let's let that thread unspool and see how he looks the rest of the way. If he could strike out more guys, that's different. We'll talk about that then. But McGreevy has always been like a just pinpoint command guy, pitching to contact largely. If he can up the velocity and miss more bats, that'll be what gets the Cardinals, I think, more compelled in him sooner. But that's kind of the that's kind of the crux of it, Wayne's hot dog stand. Like you think about the way that this internal organizational pitching depth has looked, it's not been strong, and that's why you've seen very little in the way of contributions from that Memphis mafia on the pitching side this year. Like all your depth pieces, Woodford, Zuniga, Wilkin Rodriguez, I'm talking starters and relievers, you just haven't gotten a lot from that crop. Dakota Hudson, Libertor, Graceffo, they're hoping can be the guy that can miss bats and, and be high octane. McGreevy, I still think would need to develop a little more stuff to get there. But I, what I love about McGreevy is his mentality. I think he's got a really good one. I believe he'll be a good pitcher someday. But I don't know if he'll get a crack at it in 2023 or not. They they do have the whole Zach Thompson thing, right? Like, he just struck out eight in four innings. Do they want to give him more starts ahead of one of those guys at AAA if the need should arise? Something else to think about. Jordan asks, I want to get to these questions real quick and then then hop out of here. Make sure you guys are subscribed, though, on YouTube. Makes it worthwhile to do these hour-long podcasts knowing I'm, I'm gaining new listeners and having new Cardinals fans enjoy the show. But Jordan says, playoffs aside, what would make the rest of the season be considered a win from this point on? Health, yes. A top 5-10 to 10 offense, maybe? A guy taking advantage of a starter opening, a bat improving their trade value. Improving draft lottery, lottery odds. I said lottery lots. And the front office may be feeling more pressure via attendance. I don't know what the attendance pressure will be because the Cardinals rank like second in MLB in attendance right now, and they'll still get to 3 million tickets sold. But you'll see fewer people in the stands, and if you check out stuff like StubHub or whatever you get your tickets on, there will be some good deals for the last month or so. I promise you that. I saw a picture from Sunday. I didn't stay for the game. I was there for pregame Sunday. But I saw a picture, and I was like, good grief. I know it's hot out and stuff, but wow. But Jordan asks a good question. Health, yes. Uh, yeah, I want to see the offense consistent. That That's not something you saw Sunday. But it'd be considered a win if they if if they continue to, to be that kind of top. I would say five would be a win. Top 10 is meh. They should be top 10. Show me something more than that to consider it a win. Uh, yeah, taking advantage of a starter opening like Zach Thompson, turning into a guy who misses a bunch of bats, and you're finishing this season with him for whatever reason, he gets some starts and he goes like five or six innings in each of them and is striking out eight. You go, oh, when did he make that jump and why? And is it sustainable? Yeah, that'd be a huge win. It's individuals, right, Jordan? It's finding those individuals. It's Tyler O'Neill being great again. He's done it for a couple of weeks. Let's see, he does, does it for a couple of months. Now, do you view him different? Or can you trade him for more? It would be a win either way. So I think everything you touched on, Jordan, is accurate. I just don't know if the front office will feel pressure from attendance. I think the pressure is going to be there from the record and knowing that the record is why the attendance is because that's already been put in motion. You're not going to win people back over Mason Wynn coming up in late August and showing out would be an, another thing to, to call a W Jordan, but the record is what it is at this point. And just, you're not going to change it in a meaningful way. They're going to lose a lot of games, probably 90 or more. And that's just, you know, 85 or more, whatever it is, it's going to be a losing season. They're not going to win 81 games. I think that ship has kind of sailed. So, yeah, those are kind of some of the things I think would be considered a win. Uh, Dark MA Fantasy asked Ken Luke and Baker. That's all he said. 
Um, I'll respond to that. Luke and Baker can. There you go. That's the answer to that question. I think I've covered all the ones on the tweet. I'm at bshafer12 on Twitter, guys. I'm going to be posting a lot more video content on Twitter as well. It's kind of a video. It'll be a picture, just like the YouTube stuff. But I'll post some of that to Twitter as well. Try to populate some content on there. I'm, I'm trying to see what Elon Musk is cook, cooking up. You know, I've had my thoughts on the whole X thing so far, but I'm I'm seeing people getting paid. So I, I'm, I'm watching that situation very closely. Might throw some of these on, on Twitter, but make sure you guys are subscribed on YouTube. Does my heart good? In my situation, good. If you're liking the content, easy thing you can do for free is to uh, sub on YouTube. And the thing you can do for not free is head to patreon.com slash for 12 if you really would like to support me on that level. But we're at an hour. I'm going to bounce. Appreciate you guys, as always, for listening. This is an off-day podcast, and we did an hour. I'll call that an accomplishment. But that's going to do it for this edition of the show. We'll talk to you next time on Shape Daily. Peace.